Right. So uh, Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians to deal with growing pastoral crises uh, in this congregation in Corinth. You may remember some of that. His purpose uh, in this letter was to recalibrate the, the life of the church so that uh, they were once again on track uh, and living in light of their calling as Christians. This letter deals with a host of issues, uh, but the main areas are ministry, church discipline, uh, how to relate to one another, the Lord's Supper, worship, and the resurrection. So it, it does address most areas of life to one degree or other. Uh, and still, if we consider uh, how the gravitational centers of this letter are the defense of Paul's ministry, church discipline, the Lord's Supper, and worship, we can see that this book is, uh, by and large, about the formal and institutional life of the church. This book is about church life, uh, but church life, uh, in some ways at least, centers in the formal activities that God has called us to do as the church. Certainly church is more than that, and yet uh, the church exists uh, in as much as we do those things that God has called us to do as the church. Now the first portion of this book, at least the first major portion of this book, is about Paul's apostolic ministry, uh, the foundation of the gospel community, the, this apostolic deposit that uh, Paul has laid. Uh, and we find that in chapters 1 to 4. Now, the main problem regard, regarding uh, divisions in the church in Corinth is rooted in divisions based on people's preferences which is going to be the sort of point of application to which we return uh, later. Now, the main point that I, I want to demonstrate as we consider these chapters again is that Paul defended his ministry uh, on the basis that the gospel itself has to be foremost, and God himself commissioned Paul to preach it uh, in the way that Paul did preach it. So, right, we're talking about Paul's defense of his own ministry and that it's based on the fact that God called him to do it in this way. That's the main thing we're thinking about throughout these chapters. So if you have 1 Corinthians there with you, have it, have it at chapter 1, and we're just going to walk through some points across these chapters. So as always, Paul began his letter with greetings uh, and with thanks, which we see there in verses one to nine. Now, in light of what we know is coming, I've just highlighted you this for you this issue about division. In light of what we know is coming, verse two is actually particularly important, isn't it? So he wrote there, to the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, great grace and peace to you, his normal greeting. Uh, the word sanctified, right, I want to lock in on that first, is used in a couple of different ways throughout Scripture. Right? So one of the uses refers to our continual growth in godliness 
uh, as believers, uh, which is kind of the most uh, uh, the way that we use it most often uh, in church. We talk about our sanctification, our personal growth and holiness. Uh, it can also, however, refer to setting something apart for holy use to God. We saw that actually this morning uh, in the reading from Numbers that there that some of them were carrying holy things, so tools. Uh, that were used in the tabernacle, but they were holy things uh, used for a special purpose, commissioned by God. Uh, And we see that use here, uh, that the church is set apart for a holy use by God. Now further, Paul then emphasized that they are called to be saints together. And I think we need to underline or italicize together, which highlighted their need for unity in the gospel, which is going to be important because we're about to find out there are divisions. Now, given that the Corinthians are gripped by internal divisions and and torn apart, largely because they have disregarded proper uh, Christian uh, conduct, and they are focusing more on things that they wish the church would be like, These two points seem rather important, that they're sanctified and they're called to be together. Uh, God has set them apart for his use. So it does not matter what they want their services to be like or how fancy they wish their preacher was. Uh, What matters is if they are being faithful to God in all of these issues, since the church is set apart for God. So as the church is Uh, As a a church full of divisions, it ought to hit them in the jaw, really, that their calling is to be saints together, a church in unity. They have latched on to their own opinions and preferences instead, though. In verses 10 to 17, uh, we see that their preferences had especially developed around particular preachers, uh, and they had formed groups within the church, more linked uh, to various leaders uh, or preachers, in particular Paul, Apollos, uh, and Peter. And I take the the reference to Christ there to kind of um, some, we see this today, don't we? You know, we're we're having a discussion about some theological disagreement, uh, and one person says, well, I I take this view, I'm Reformed, or I'm Baptist, or I just follow Jesus. Uh, And I think that's what's happening here. we have somebody who says, I like Paul, I like Apollos, I like Peter. Well, I just like Christ. Um, and they had formed these divisions about who's holier based around the preachers they like or whom they wanted to connect their names with. And so then in verses 18 to 31, Paul's response to these divisions that have uh, fomented around preferences for individual leaders is that these Corinthians have assess the prestige of leadership according to worldly patterns of thinking. The trouble is that the gospel does not function according to those patterns. It's easy to think that that the world seems to like this or that thing, that the world would enjoy it if the church was like this. So the church would be more successful if we did that. The Jews demanded signs, the Greeks demanded wisdom or rhetoric, Modern society demands entertainment, preferences, and politically correct affirmations, but God works through the proclamation of the gospel. 
He, God, chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So we need to rely on what God has told us to do, namely explain the word of the cross, which God uses to bring sinners to salvation. And in that way, God gets the glory and all boasting must be in the Lord. And so in that respect, even though the world does not consider gospel proclamation wise, it is God's wisdom, which is the point Paul explores in chapter 2. So if you want to turn the page or your eyes over to chapter 2. So Paul wrote, beginning in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and, fear, and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that, or with the result that, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So it does not seem wise According to the world, does it to worship a crucified carpenter like Christians do? That strikes the world as though our champion actually lost. But in God's wisdom, Christ's death took away the sting of death. Since he died in our place, bearing our penalty for sin, since the sting of death is the power of the law. The gospel, that, that gospel truth, though, has to be revealed. Since we can't, we can't figure out the gospel on our own, right? Unless God tells us about it, which is exactly Paul's point in verses 6 to 16. And so again, we circle back to the issue of why we prefer what we prefer. Something can seem like the most obvious thing to us that must be done but that was the case in Corinth, and they were actually up against God's own wisdom. We must then ask serious questions about ourselves. Uh, don't we need to do that? About why we have landed at the position that we have taken. Is it wisdom that originates in us, or is it wisdom measured in strict accord with the word of God? And that, that is Paul's point in chapter 3. The divisions in the church have grown because individual individuals in Corinth have been measuring preachers according to their preferences. Just like you would not measure a sound building according to simply if you like this room or that room, but you would measure a sound building by checking to see if the whole building was actually fit correctly onto the foundation. And so in that respect, we hope that sound building, if you're looking for a house, you would find a sound building that you also like. At the same time, you don't want a building that you like that isn't sound and isn't fit to the foundation. And in the same way, Christians need to measure preaching and Christian ministry, not by whether they like this guy or that guy, or whether they like this guy or that guy better, but why? But whether this whole ministry is fit to the apostolic foundation of the gospel. 
Corinthian church members were arguing about who is God's most useful pastor, but they've locked their debates in on the crown molding rather than on the foundation. So, in that regard, Paul points out that he is not just another worker with some idea. He is an apostle with the blueprint from God. This is not a baking contest to see who invents the best product from their imagination. This is a technical challenge to see who produces a ministry in full accord with the standards laid down in the inspired word of God. And so in chapter 4, since then, Paul is not an innovator, and no one else is supposed to be an innovator. Well, then ministers are to be regarded as servants and stewards. They are taking care of something, right? That someone else, namely God himself, has given them to do. And that, of course, has to be the default self-conception of every pastor and elder. Our job is not about creativity or having the best new ideas. Our job is about doing what we are told. We're not the boss. The baseline question is not, does that sound like a good or interesting idea? But the baseline question is, does that fit the foundation set out in the word of God? And so chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any other human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So there is a, a caution here that successful, quote, you know, successful, especially by worldly standards, is not the ultimate category. The, the real standard for church ministry is faithful. It, it is not about so. It is not so much about how much gets accomplished, as it is about if we have done what God told us to do. And so there is then a caution, actually, for every single Christian, every single one of us. This is kind of paradigmatic about ministry, right? And yet there's a caution here for every single one of us as we think about what we expect from our churches, from our church on this Zoom call, and how we approach evaluating. Verse 6, right? Paul makes this very clear. I have, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us 
not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul wrote this, as this, this whole description of his ministry and, and his goals as a challenge to us. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And so, right, the first major section of this letter is about divisions that grew out of varying evaluations of ministers that were not based on the foundation of God's revealed plan for salvation, but were based on some personal opinion. And now the applications throughout that section are numerous, but but I want to focus on, on one particular thing. Okay, so over over the last six years, uh, so this is this is not anything that I have developed in light of things happening here. I've just thought a lot about this category over a long period of, of doing ministry in various capacities. I've thought a lot about the category of preferences. And I think that's a that's a word we need to learn about to, to turn over in our heads uh, and to consider more deeply. I think the category of preferences is really important for us to understand. It shows that there is a range of ways to think about church life. Uh, and I think it helps us examine ourselves as well. So the first question I, I think we have to ask when we're um, thinking about our church, and perhaps uh, we wish something was happening or something different was happening or uh, we have an idea for it, whatever the case, I, I think you get where I'm going. I think the first question we, we have to ask is, am I dwelling on my own preference? Now, uh, a, a useful assessment here. To push that further and be more specific is, is to ask ourselves whether we're thinking about something uh, that has a biblical passage that mandates what I'm saying, what, what I'm suggesting, what I'm wanting. So Paul wrote in, uh, for example, Paul wrote to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word, right? So we can't set aside having sermons. In our worship services, that's a clear and overt statement of, of one thing that we have to do. So if we're thinking about uh, these things that we wish our church had, if we have that sort of biblical passage, not implications from passages, but that direct assertion, then we can know that we are beyond our preferences and we are into God's very blueprints for what the church should do. Now, outside of, of those line items of God's blueprints, we can think within the realm of wisdom and evaluate our preferences, right? So even building on the foundation, on the correct foundation, there is room to do things differently and still be doing things the right way or a right way. So, for example, let me, let me give you an example of, 
this, right? I think, as all of you likely know by this point in our relationship, I think the Westminster Standards, the Confession, Larger, Shorter Catechism, are the best summary of what the Bible teaches, okay? It would be hard to argue that they are unbiblical, um, in, especially in my view. And because I think they are the best uh, summary, it would be easy for me, wouldn't it, to set aside everyone who thinks otherwise as sub-biblical, below standard, or outright incorrect. Now, several of my best friends, though, in America... Uh, are ministers in Reformed churches from the Continental tradition. And, and so they use the, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort. It would be wrong at the end of the day, it genuinely would be wrong for me to question their faithfulness to Christ and the way that they do church just because they have not bought into exactly how Presbyterians do things. The Westminster Standards summarize the Bible, and so do the Continental Confessions. Just because they are a little different and they get executed a little bit differently does not mean that they are not based on the same principles. It does not mean that one of us is unfaithful. Both are good. And that sometimes is hard for us to accept. One of the hardest things, I think, for us to recognize at times is that two things are both good. Right, especially when we want one of them, uh, we are good that uh, we are good at thinking what I want is good, but it is hard to admit that something else is also good and acceptable by biblical principles. Paul and Apollos, right, we see this in these chapters, preached in very different ways. That seems obvious because they were liked differently for their different styles. Uh, it, it should not have caused division since they both worked off of the apostolic blueprint. But it did because people love being exclusively right and love getting their way. So there is the foundation. Then there are preferences for good ways of building on the same foundation. And we need to recognize that there are other good ways of doing the same thing, even if I prefer one of them. Right? and. And we need to be all right if we're in that realm of being flexible. And then finally, though, there are preferences that I want that are much further removed from the foundation. We can turn things that we want that are totally indifferent or even wrong into rifts within the church. Right In my, in my previous church, uh, before I got there, thankfully, uh, but at one point in time, I know that there was a major debate, major, I mean, people fell out over this, over the color of the curtain in the church halls. Now, not, not even something in the worship space, okay, that pertains to the first job of the church, but something over in another building that the scripture certainly does not address. And yet people fell out. They insisted on preferences without evaluating where in the spectrum their preferences sat in terms of importance or even validity. And so 
1 Corinthians 1 to 4 calls us to examine our hearts when we want the church to do this, that, or another thing. Is what I want the foundation? It is what I want one way, one good way to build on the foundation, and I need to be flexible because this building and that building both are good and both square, both fit the foundation and match the blueprint. I may like one of these good things more, but I can't insist and cause division uh, that this must be done because both are good. Or is my preference actually completely indifferent? I have to, in that case, right, if I'm mad about the color of the curtain, which, yeah, or whatever, you know, I have to get over it because the color of a folding chair is not mandated by scripture or connected to a principle. There may be wisdom decisions in those things, and that's fine to discuss it. The point is not keep our mouths shut. We, it's, we're free to discuss these things, right? But the point is we don't fall out and cause divisions when we're in this realm of preference. Or then even finally, is my preference wrong? That can be the case. This seems good, but actually it's the world's wisdom rather than drawn from the wisdom of God and the word of the cross at all. I could just be wrong. And we don't like to explore that option. But regardless, the good news is that Christ does forgive us when we fail the odds are we're going to fall out with another Christian at some point. And thankfully, it's not the unforgivable sin. We even have, not just between God and ourselves, as Christ has died to pay for us, but even amongst Christians, we have the responsibility to apologize, but we also have the responsibility to forgive. And that means that we can go confess Make amends because there's going to be reconciliation. God has called us to salvation. And even when we fail, right, at this, this is a church of divisions. But what, what did Paul open by saying? That they are called to be a church together. And so he will work that among us, right? He, he gave 1 Corinthians 1 to 4 to the church to sanctify us in this way of unity. I think this is really important right now. Actually, this, is, this has really been on my heart, especially the last few days, because churches across the land are dividing over debates about how to respond to COVID right now. Genuinely falling out, lots of troubles. Uh, and right, we have two applications right here of very specific things that we need to do, each and every one of us. Right? We need to first, genuinely, sincerely, we need to praise God for the unity that we have experienced at LCPC up until this moment, because that has not been the experience of every congregation. Right? We need to thank God for the good ways that he's blessed us in this respect. And then second, right, to follow up on it, we need to beg God that he would maintain 
and even improve that unity. Because it is something that we should treasure and cherish and work towards. And we should beg God that he will sustain that for us in the leadership, in the members, in the membership to the leaders, in every direction, right? We praise God and we ask him to keep doing what he's done and even do it more. Uh, so in that regard, uh, we're going to pray uh, unto that end um, and then, and then we'll sing together. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this portion of scripture and we thank you for the opportunity to revisit it in some uh, and that we see that there is a profound message, uh, even a profound new message uh, from the same text that we've considered even as a church already in uh, in the year past. Uh, we're, we are thankful to, to make immediate application here, God. We are thankful uh, that by and large, we as a congregation have experienced unity over this last even year, almost, of difficulty uh, when so many churches have suffered in so uh, many serious ways and even divided and fallen out and argued uh, at length. God, you have blessed us richly and deeply. Uh, and we know that things aren't perfect but we would be amiss uh, not to recognize how good, how really good you have been to us, even in this way. And in that respect, we don't take it for granted, but we, we come to you and we beg you that you would maintain and even deepen, strengthen, and improve that unity. That our members, even in this time when we cannot be together, that our hearts would ache to be with one another, not, of course, for worship, yes, but just in general, that even on this call, we would see one another and long that all of these people would know our care and affection that we personally have for them. And that even though that there are things that we all wish uh, would happen or that we would want in in churches and perhaps even in this church, God, that we would evaluate it wisely. But more than that, that we would strive after unity, that we would do that well, that you would sustain and maintain that for us, that you would bless that in our midst, uh, and that you would cause us to be a deeply unified church. You have called us to be a church together. We pray that you you would help us answer that call and work that among us. We pray for wisdom. We pray for blessing. Uh, there are so many things for which we could pray for for the week ahead. So many needs. You know them, Lord. And so we bring, we bring these specific things to you uh, now. And we pray for them in Christ's name. Amen.